joining us for this podcast series from Citadel Chambers, a leading and progressive set of barristers specialising in crime and situated in the heart of Birmingham. We'll be taking a close look at the issues that impact on the cases the barristers deal with in court. If you're a barrister at another chambers, or if you're thinking about becoming a barrister, you'll be interested in our special podcasts about the working lives of the barristers at Citadel Chambers. I'm your host, Rebecca Harding, and I'll be joined by a range of experts from Citadel, from Queen's Council through to their junior barristers. They can all be contacted via the Citadel website, citadelchambers.com. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome. I'm Rebecca Harding and I'm a journalist and today I'm joined by both a barrister and a psychiatrist to look at the issue of mental health within the court system. Mental health has come to the forefront of the social agenda and awareness and attitudes have been changing tremendously over the last few years. So I wanted to find out how those with mental health issues are treated within the justice system and I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Weston and Dr Andrew Isles. Adam is a criminal barrister based at Citadel Chambers in Birmingham. He's been prosecuting and defending in the Crown Court and the Court of Appeal for over 20 years, and he's taken a particular interest in defendants with serious mental disorders. Andrew is a consultant psychiatrist at the Priory in Oxford, and also acts as a forensic psychiatrist in both clinical and criminal justice settings. He led the mental health team at Brixton Prison. And he currently works for Surrey NHS and is responsible for the care of mentally disordered offenders who are both in the community and in secure hospitals. So welcome to you both. How are you? Hi, Rebecca. Very well, thanks. Hi, Andrew. Hi there. Hi, both. Good to see you both again. So, Adam, you've been working on cases recently where defendants have had mental health issues. Do you want to tell us a bit more about it to kick us off? Well, there was an example recently. I defended this man in the Crown Court and and then in the Court of Appeal. He was a a man in his late 20s who, after he was arrested, was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. Now, before this arrest, and he was eventually convicted of attempted murder, he had uh, repeatedly stabbed, attempted to murder a woman who was then 34 years of age outside a church in Coventry. Uh, She had attended the midnight mass service over the Easter weekend and was outside uh, tending to her son. She had stepped outside from the uh, service. And after he was arrested, uh, he was sectioned under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act. But as I say... Uh, This serious mental disorder had never been picked up prior to his arrest. Uh, When he's at the police station, he's seen there by the mental health team, gets transferred under Section 2 of the Act to Rayside Mental Health Unit in Birmingham. And there he's then uh, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. But it just highlighted what so frequently happens in the criminal justice system is that people with these serious disorders are only diagnosed as having them after they go through the process, after they enter the criminal justice system. So, Andrew, would you agree that it's very common for people not to get diagnosed until they get into trouble and into the system? Is that that something you agree with as well? Uh, Definitely. I mean, if we're talking about this particular cohort, of course, because um, not everybody who has a mental Mm. illness will offend, but of those who show offending behaviour, you're absolutely right. It's not uncommon 
for the mental disorder not to be discovered or to be recognised or described until they come into contact with the criminal justice system. So Adam, is this frustrating for you when it happens so often? Um, the, the, the fact that somebody commits crimes because they have a serious disorder, of, you know, that concerns me as a barrister. It concerns me as a citizen that there are people out there who could get treatment, and if they got the treatment, they may not offend. That, that I find frustrating. I think, I think we all do. I can't really blame the, the doctors or the individuals concerned because if I just take the example of, of Mr W, the man I defended in the Court of Appeal, he, as I say, he was an Eritrean man, uh, couldn't speak very much English. I think he thought there was a stigma about having mental health problems. He was probably suspicious of engaging with the authorities, even by way of the NHS and doctors. Yeah. And so it, it just got never, it got never, never got picked up. What I find frustrating is when we know that there are people who have serious mental health problems who are in prison when they could get treatment, are released and then reoffend. That that I think is frustrating because that's a problem we could deal with. So what are your views on that, Andrew? Well, there are a few things there that Adam mentioned, and I would agree that obviously sometimes the prediction of offending is difficult and sometimes it's not always clear who is then going to offend. People even who have an established diagnosis of mental disorder, it may come out of the blue when they come to offend. I think that there are probably lost opportunities, however, in terms of recognising mental disorder or... um, reaching the right diagnosis or making sure the right Mm. treatment's available or making sure people don't get lost to follow up. Those things are all important Mm. factors as well. Adam's second point about the lost opportunities when people then go out into the community, I think that is a really valid point because sometimes there can be real challenges and hurdles along the way, which mean that actually good follow-up arrangements, those opportunities are lost for those So one of the things that I do in the community in my forensic work with the NHS is I work for a forensic um, outreach and liaison service. So we supervise mentally disordered offenders in the community, commonly those who've been through prison, who've been released or have been to a secure unit and have been discharged. Because what we know about risk assessment is that mental illness, active mental illness, personality disorder, substance misuse, these things all contribute towards risk of reoffending, and they are dynamic risk factors and that means that we can have an influence on them so if we can supervise people and keep them well and promote well-being and make sure that they are connected to people we have a role in helping to reduce the risk of reoffending. in contrast if someone comes out of prison and has no support because they're not on license not under probation not under a mental health team then you miss that opportunity no, I can see that. But going back to Adam's first point, how much crime do you think could be prevented if there was more mental health care at younger ages and it was identified earlier? Because they wouldn't even be getting into the system then and coming out the other end. We'd, we'd catch it much earlier. What do you think about that? I think it would be really hard to quantify it. So to model how much offending could be reduced if we intervened earlier. So I can't really put a number to it or a percentage, but What I will say is you're absolutely right, a really important question, because 
if we were able to do more at earlier ages, then undoubtedly we would reduce the risk of reoffending later in life. In terms of children, if we had better resources to intervene, either from mental health or from social services, or whatever the problem might be, if we had the right resources there, access to things like youth clubs and um, youth workers and different programmes, those things would be really, really helpful to mitigate some of the problems that might be going on in the home or might be going on in the school. So there are lots of opportunities which could be capitalised upon <laughs> if um, we had the right resources and we matched our workflow to it. Rebecca, could I just come in? You know, I, I agree with Andrew. Um, but I just, just add this, there are plenty of people who have mental health issues, who have serious mental health disorders, but of course don't offend. Mm. In, in Mr W's case, um, one of the doctors there said that if he didn't have paranoid schizophrenia, he wouldn't have committed this offence. Now, I can't put a number on how many people who, who have serious mental disorders go on mm. and offend, and I can't put, it, put a number on you know, how many of those people, if we could treat them, wouldn't go on and re-offend. But that's just one example. You know, if it had been picked up, uh, you know, there's, there's every chance the, mm. the victim, Mrs N, uh, would not have been attacked that, that night. So, I mean, we're not going to get that kind of care at the young, uh, at the early stages of, you know, kids' lives looking at mental health for some years. I mean, there's plans to do it. With, there's a lot of talk about investing in it, but we're not going to see the impact of that for some time. So, Adam, do you think that barristers need to be trained as part of their formal training to recognise um, a number of mental health disorders? I, th I think barristers are, are getting better... I'm going to say lawyers, so this is solicitor and barristers, hmm. are getting better and better at it. Um, you know, we are trained to listen to people. Hmm. We are trained to read everything, to look at the detail. Uh, we spend time when we're defending. We spend, spend time with the client hmm. and just let them speak. And over the, you know, when you get experience... There are some obvious signs there. So in Mr. W's case, this was a man in his late 20s. Uh, he'd never been in trouble with the police in this mm. country before. There was no, uh, there's no pattern of him being violent or anything like that. And so it was obviously there that, you know, something had seriously gone, gone wrong and he had had a breakdown. Um, so I'm not sure really whether barristers need uh, uh, training at it. Because, you know, there's so much focus now on mental health issues. We know there are so many people going through the criminal justice system who've got serious mental health problems. So I, th I think <clears throat> the bar and solicitors are alive to the issue. Um, how many people slip through the net? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So in terms of, so you have somebody you, or a solicitor comes to you and says, this person I believe has a mental health disorder. What sort of care then going through the system um, do they get? Is there any are, are any provision made for that um, once you've sort of started to identify a mental health issue? And what options are there for them before they get to actually into a court? Because um, it must be very stressful for them. There's, uh, it, it, it's, there's a big difference between somebody who's on bail and somebody who's in custody. Um, now, if somebody's in custody, depending on the prison, that will determine how much assistance and support they get. Uh, if somebody's on bail, 
then, you know, for example, a judge can make it a condition of his bail that he cooperates with a specified psychiatrist or a doctor to make sure they get treatment. After somebody's been convicted or that they found that they, they did the act if they've got a medical dis, uh, mental disorder, then there's a variety of options available to the judge. There could be a community order with a mental health treatment required. They could be made subject to a, a hospital order. Prior to any conviction, they could be made subject to an interim hospital order. Um, they could be made subject to a hospital order with a restriction or that hybrid order that I referred to at the start. So there's a variety of uh, packages uh, there available to the judge to make sure somebody gets the treatment. I think the problem comes is that, you know, if, if somebody is given a prison sentence, but they've got mental health issues, not so serious that it requires a hospital order, but just to make sure they get the treatment when they're in hospital. And that all comes down to resources. So, Andrew, I mean, it must be really traumatic for somebody to go with a mental health issue to go through the whole um, system of going to court. I think normal people, you know, that don't have mental health issues find it stressful enough. So is it actually fair to put people like that through going to court? Um, and do they actually understand what's happening? Well, obviously somebody needs to be fit to go to court is, is the first thing to say. So if somebody um, was unfit to plead as per what we call the Pritchard criteria, for example, they would be deemed not fit to go to court or to participate in the trial. So that's an important distinction, I think, to make. For people who are fit to plead and stand trial, sometimes going through the court process can be um, actually therapeutic in itself. And I don't mean that going to court is um, pleasant or reassuring, but it's therapeutic in the sense that it can help to break the cycle of reoffending. So, you know, right. it's that sort of therapeutic jurisprudence is important, actually. Um, and I think that we would be missing something if we thought that um, people who have mental disorders shouldn't be charged, shouldn't be tried, shouldn't be convicted. Because actually, sometimes maybe decision making has gone awry, but often with mentally disordered offenders, it's not that they didn't know what they were doing or didn't know that what they were doing was wrong which forms the basis for what we call the insanity criteria, so the McNaughton rules. So it's not common that we find somebody who is so um, mentally disturbed that mm. they wouldn't be able to know those things. Um, so actually, most psychiatrists, and I think that most lawyers would agree as well, that there is a purpose and there is an importance that even with people who have mental disorder, that there is still benefit for them going through the criminal justice system. Some people might find it very distressing if the circumstances mm. of the offence were very traumatic and they themselves might find it traumatic. And then I suppose it depends on the individual case as to whether or not any support is then offered at court. What you say there about therapy, Andrew, uh, I'll just give you an example. I defended somebody this morning. Uh, he, he was, he's effectively a recluse, lived by himself for 40 years, uh, suffers from depression. He's been we had a doctor diagnose him, diagnosed with severe depression. What you talk say there about therapy is absolutely true in his case. He's being remanded in custody. And I asked him, you know, is life better for you that you're in prison compared to what your life was? Because before he got remanded, he was drinking two litres of vodka a day, two litres a oh day. Oh, my goodness. 
so he's in the month or so that he's been in custody, he's dried out. He's got a listener, a Samaritan. So this is a prisoner, an inmate on his wing who he goes and speaks to for half an hour every day. And he's never had that before. And so he frankly said, life is better for him in custody. There's it's what you say there, that, you know, the therapy of the system. I'm not, not saying that's, you know, he reflects many uh, defendants. But, um, you know, it, it is an example yeah. there of, some, of somebody where the system is, is actively helping. So, I, don't, I mean, that's clearly benefited that man. Do you feel that today's judgments are sympathetic enough to mental health issues? Do you, do you think they have improved over time? And do you think more people are benefiting from the kind of judgments they're getting? Or do you think there's still further to go? The, the, the problem that I would highlight is, is the one that I mentioned. You've, you, you have somebody who has mental health issues. It contributes. It's one of the reasons why they offend. The disorder is not so serious that it qualifies them for a, a hospital order or some other form treatment so they get a prison sentence it's it's you know they go to a prison where the support isn't great and then of course well what happens well their their mental health just deteriorates nothing gets addressed they come out on license without any formal support well and guess what happens they would they reoffend i think that's you know, where the gap is. And, and that, again, just comes down to resources, doesn't it? You know, it's not politically popular to spend money on therapy for prisoners. So what do you think, Andrew? Well, I think the availability of um, mental health orders and interventions has probably um, become better over recent years. Um, so there has always been, well, for as long as I um, have been working, the hospital order um, provision. Um, and that's obviously always been used for a certain threshold of person who goes through the criminal justice service. But Adam is right that obviously if somebody doesn't meet that threshold, goes to prison, that does not mean that they don't have mental health treatment needs. And actually, not because the health services and prisons are poor, but they're often under-resourced. So the number of people on one community psychiatric nurse's caseload within the prison is probably mm-hmm. higher than that nurse feels that they can comfortably manage. Mm-hmm. So certainly there is um, a sense or a consensus of underfunding. But there are other um, interventions that are coming to be more popular. So a, a good friend of mine, um, Mignon French, she works Um, And she's the programme lead for mental health treatment requirements, which Adam will have heard about, although they tend to be more applicable for um, the magistrates courts, because often in the Crown courts, um, it's not always possible that a community order might be considered by the judge at the point of sentencing. So obviously, it may not always be um, something which Adam might come into contact with in his own individual practice. But in the magistrates' courts, particularly, there is a function for a mental health treatment requirement to be made. And they can be very useful because what they do is that the person gets a community order, but there is a requirement on the offender 
to participate in some mental health treatment. And these used to be really clunky and really difficult to um, arrange. Whereas uh, my friend Mignon and the people that she works with, uh, she also sits as a magistrate, by the way. Um, she has um, worked on trying to make these more accessible and not make them dependent on having to be under the care of a psychiatrist. So it might mean having some talking therapy in the community, for example, and that might form the mental health treatment. So there are other projects and things which have been going on in the background. Um, whether or not um, we've made enough progress yet, I suppose, is the moot point. Yeah. At the other end of this is, is those serious offenders, those dangerous, dangerous people who need not just to be treated, but need to be kept in prison for, for a long time, uh, you know, to punish them but also to get treatment. And, and one of the disposals available to courts is this hybrid order. This is what Mr W got. Mm. And so you have a period where the offender is in hospital being treated. And once the doctors say that he's fit to return to prison, then he goes back to prison to complete his, his sentence. So in, in terms of the disposals available, there's, there's disposals at, at, at both ends, you know, those who can be supervised safely in the community and those who need treatment, but also who, who need to be kept out of circulation. So do you feel, Adam, that, um, that the system's genuinely achieving the right balance with the majority of individuals between their culpability and, and what Andrew was saying about the therapy of actually recognising the crime through the, through the system? and their mental health needs. Is that balance right for the majority of people? Well, you, I mean, you can't, uh, you can't look at these issues, you know, outside the context of, of COVID and the pandemic because mm. uh, anybody who's in custody now are being locked up in their cells for, mm. you know, 22 hours a day. Uh, you know, I, I moan that I can only go out to exercise uh, once a day. Well, well, just imagine if you're kept in a cell, uh, no doubt having to share with somebody who's probably not your best mate uh, for 22 hours a day. Um, who, who knows what damage that is doing to people's mental Absolutely. health? So, I mean, on the whole, do you feel that the system's working? Do you feel, and this is a question to both of you, do you feel that the system is on the whole stopping people with mental health from reoffending, or do you feel that the balance is still not right there? When, when you have somebody who you're supervising on a hospital order, for example, you know, do you, do you see an improvement in somebody where you can say, actually, yeah, this, this chap is, is now going to lead a law-abiding life? Do you think those... You know, because as a barrister, I'm there when the order's made, and that's probably the last of my involvement. Mm. It's a really interesting question, and certainly I can think of a good number of people who I have seen recover and move to the mm. point that they could be safely discharged into the community. And now I'm working in the community. So my first mm. few years as a consultant, I used to supervise inpatients who were under restricted hospital orders, Whereas now I'm looking after the restricted hospital orders who've been conditionally discharged. So I'm seeing yeah. the success of those programmes, I suppose. But it is very much um, a case by case example. And I think the other thing to capture here is that there is so much resource that needs to be put into an individual person to get them to that point. That it's almost skewed for me to think about the people that I've seen in a hospital, because we're probably only seeing 
a proportion of the people that need to be helped. And for whatever reason, some people might not come to the attention of services, some people might quite not meet the threshold, and therefore there's probably lots and lots of opportunity to reduce the risk of reoffending in the mentally disordered population than we're actually currently doing. So case by case, I'd like to say that um, you know my colleagues and I are doing a fairly good job, but equally there are probably <laughs> lots and lots of cases that aren't getting the right intervention. Mm -hmm. And therefore, overall, can we say we're doing a good job? That's I think that's difficult to say. So obviously you see like three stages of the process. You go to courts, you've seen prison, and now you're seeing the community. If you could suggest one thing that you could do to improve the system, what would that be? I keep making the same points. That that would be my answer. You know, you just improve the resources for mental health services okay. in, in prison. That's well, if I could break my answer down, if it was long term, I think it's early intervention, public health measures, but that's yeah, a longer yeah. term benefit. I think that shorter term benefits are things like making sure that people have access to um, even low level support straight away. So, for example, people who might be charged with um, accessing child pornography, for example, we know that they're really high risk of suicide once they're apprehended by the police. So, so for, for, for example, for that sort of group of people, they need some support straight away. Um, in, you know, and this is about early intervention post-charge or post-investigation. Medium-term things are probably like more about easing the barriers and the hurdles which go along the way when people transition from one phase to the next or from one establishment to the next. So I think that if I can be awkward, there's probably um, <laughs> an answer for medium, for long and for short term. Yeah. No, that's excellent. That's really yeah. helpful. Well, that, I mean, that was absolutely brilliant, both of you. Thank you so much. And we really appreciate your time and, and it's been very informative. So if you have any questions for Adam Weston or Dr. Andrew Isles, you can contact Adam through Citadel Chambers in Birmingham or on LinkedIn. And Andrew can be reached by his website, expertcourtreports.co.uk. Thank you so much for joining us. This podcast was brought to you by Citadel Chambers, a leading and progressive set of barristers specialising in crime and situated in the heart of Birmingham. If you want to get in touch with any of our speakers in this podcast episode, then please visit our website, citadelchambers.com. All the views expressed in this podcast are individual opinions and do not constitute professional advice. If you want to see how an issue applies to your own situation, then please talk to us directly to obtain professional advice.